So we are exactly three-fourths of the way through the book of Exodus. And we've been in Exodus for exactly a year now, and we are set to finish, Lord willing, sometime early summer. Uh, so we're almost there. We're almost there. Um, I appreciate, brother, what you prayed. I want to remind us twice in Luke 24, Jesus makes the point to remind his followers, his disciples, that what is written in the Old Testament, right, the law and the prophets and the Psalms bears witness to and testifies to Jesus. It points to Jesus. It is appropriate and right that we look for those connections between the old and the new. Again, we read the Old Testament as promise, the New Testament as fulfillment. It is one grand story, but it's appropriate to ask the question, when you're in the OT, the Old Testament, how does this point to Jesus, right? That's important. And uh, if you've been here long, we tend to ask that question every week. So Exodus 31 to 10, the title of my sermon, The Sweet Presence of the Lord. I hope you can relate to that idea that the presence of the Lord is most sweet. The big idea, only through sacrifice is the Lord pleased to dwell with his people. And all God's people said, amen. Only through sacrifice is the Lord pleased to dwell with his people. If you've studied the Protestant Reformation, there is a name that should be familiar. However, it is one that has gone down in infamy. Uh, this is not a popular character in the Reformation. It's the individual Johann Tetzel. Tetzel was uh, commissioned to sell indulgences in Germany by uh, Pope Leo, not King Leo, Pope Leo X. And maybe you're not familiar with that practice, uh, indulgences. What is an indulgence? This was an erroneous practice. It basically taught that you could give money to the church, you would get almost like a receipt, but you could pay money and then maybe that money would go to help build a new cathedral. But in paying that money, you could lessen a loved one's time in purgatory. And again, that was a Catholic doctrine uh, they believed in purgatory, this intermediate state of punishment. And so they taught that if you give money, you can somehow appease God's wrath by what you do, lessening your time of punishment. And hopefully all of us know our Bibles well enough to say, wait a minute, that's not right. We don't find that in Scripture. The only thing, in fact, it's a person that can appease God's wrath and that can make us right with God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we see that in our text. This is a tough passage. There is, if you ask me, Chris, you know, what, is the, what are the key verses in Exodus 30, 1 to 10? I would point you quickly to verses 6 and 7. We'll take some time to unpack those verses. But there is an intentional association in our passage in verses 6 and 7. The association, now, just imagine the, the sweet Smell of incense, that's the first thing. So the sweet smell of incense, and with that, the mercy seat, the place of atonement, the, the place where God rules over his people by his word, the place where God meets with his people, right? We, we've talked about this. The ark was this golden box that housed God's law. It was the only piece of furniture in the most holy place, and on top of that box, there was a lid. It was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. 
And on that lid, there were these two angelic figures, cherubim with heads bowed down, again signifying this is a most holy place, right? But you got the sweet-smelling incense associated with the atonement cover, the mercy seat, the place of atonement, the place where God met with his people, a place of sacrifice. So that association in verses 6 and 7 would teach us and should teach us a very important truth. And here it is. Only through sacrifice will the Lord be pleased to dwell with mankind. The sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Martin Luther got that. Martin Luther got that. The great reformer, he responded to this with outrage, right? This idea that mankind, through paying money, could somehow appease God's wrath. No, no, no. It's only through the blood sacrifice of Jesus that we are made right with God. And again, all God's people said, amen. Only through the sacrifice of Jesus can our sins be atoned for and God's holy wrath satisfied. God is only pleased to dwell with us through the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So where do we start? <laughs> where do we start? It's been a while, and so I want to take a moment to review. I want us to step back and review some of the tabernacle furniture, what it symbolizes, what it points to, before we actually look at the altar of incense. So what does the tabernacle and its furnishings, we, we've talked about the ark, we've talked about the table for bread, we've talked about the golden lampstand, we've talked about the bronze altar outside of the tabernacle. What do these things symbolize? What do they teach us about God? So quickly, by way of review, let's answer that question. First, and i got like four things here, so it'll be quick, but first, God is holy, God is royal, right, he's kingly, and God is glorious. His holiness, and I've, I've really tried to emphasize this, his holiness is emphasized by the numerous layers of separation in the courtyard. You couldn't just waltz into the tabernacle, right? When you entered into the courtyard from the east, what's the first thing that you would come face to face with? A bronze altar, the, the place of sacrifice. And then after that, there was the bronze laver, and this was a place of washing or cleansing. And then after that, you would come to the tent. But before you could be in the most holy place, and remember, only one person could do that, and only once a year, that was the high priest, you had the holy place. So there's all these layers of separation which are meant to remind us that God is holy and we are, we're not, we're not. And as we've seen the past few weeks, we need a holy representative and a holy sacrifice, amen? We need, I mean, I have, I have killed that horse, that horse has been dead. Next, God takes the initiative. Oh, let me mention this. So I said God is holy, royal, and glorious. If you recall all the different bright colors used and the precious materials used in the constructing of the tabernacle, right, the blues and the purples and the gold and all the precious stones, all of those things help us to see that the person who dwells here is royal and precious and most glorious. All right, number two. Again, we're just reviewing. God takes the initiative. That's really important. Who saves their people? Who saves their people? God does. Who speaks? God. Who instructs? 
God. Who appears? God. God takes the initiative when we see that so clearly in the book of Exodus, right? It's not that, you know, God's people are just saying, hey, God, do these things. God sees it fit to do these things. He takes the initiative. He rescues his people. He dwells among his people. He speaks to his people. Number three, and this is a huge theme, God desires fellowship with his people. He is with his people. That's the whole point of the tabernacle, by the way. Namely, that the Lord might dwell visibly among his people. The the golden lampstand and its continually lit candles. And then, of course, the altar of incense that was burned in the morning and at nighttime was a constant reminder. These things were a constant reminder of God's abiding presence with his people. And lastly, by way of review, Oh, God provides both for the physical and spiritual needs of his people. The physical is symbolized by the bread of the presence, right? God feeds his people. But not just that, we have the spiritual through the sacrificial system. In the holy priesthood, God meets our spiritual needs. We need fellowship with God. We need forgiveness of sin, and God meets those needs. Amen? And as we've seen each time, All of these things, everything that's housed in the courtyard and in the tabernacle, if you were listening to our brother's prayer, Pastor Aaron, all of these things point to and find their fulfillment in Jesus, in the gospel about Jesus. For example, this is the last two weeks, Jesus, as both our great high priest and the perfect Lamb of God, makes a way for sinners like you and me to be reconciled to a holy and good God. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, what does Jesus say? I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' sacrifice in our place represents God's ultimate provision for his people. Does God provide for our needs? Yes. What is the ultimate fulfillment of that? Jesus. Jesus. All right, so if you've been here for some time, You've been with us as we've talked about the different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. We have asked four questions. I've tried to be very consistent, right? And so we're going to apply those same four questions now to the altar of incense. Number one, what is it? Number two, what's its purpose? Number three, what does the altar of incense teach us about God? And number four, again, the final question, which is so good, how does it point to Jesus in the gospel? So the altar of incense, what is it? (laughs) What is it? Well, the, the altar itself was made of acacia wood, and there should be a picture. You got a picture in your handout? Do you like the pictures? Is that helpful? No? Okay, well, I'm going to keep giving them. I think it's helpful. I'm a visual learner. So this altar, it was square-shaped. It was a foot and a half wide and a foot and a half deep and about three feet tall. It had four horns on top, just like the bronze altar. The whole thing was overlaid with gold. Wow. Each side was equipped with two gold rings through which poles would go through. And these poles, too, were made of acacia wood, and they, too, were overlaid with gold for the purpose of transporting. Because, again, what was the tabernacle? It was a portable tent, right? They were going somewhere. They were going to the promised land. And when God said it's time to move, they moved. And so the purpose of the poles was to transport the altar of incense. It was placed directly in front of the veil separating the holy place from 
the most holy place before the Ark of the Covenant. That's really significant. That's verses 6 and 7. We'll come back there. All right, so that's what it is. It's an altar of incense. And again, I mean, what's its purpose? What do you do with an altar of incense? You, you burn incense on it, right? We could just stop there, but we're not. That's the obvious purpose, was for burning incense. But what did this mean, and why was it to be done regularly every morning and every evening? T. Desmond Alexander, he notes, used for burning incense, the altar produced a pleasing aroma in the tent. I mean, we like pleasing aromas, don't we? This is a further indicator that the tent is constantly occupied by the Lord, who appreciates the distinctive perfume. All right, so let's come back to verses 6 and 7. What is the relationship between verses 6 and 7? Why mention the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's the lid. This functioned as God's throne where he ruled over his people visibly by his word, but it was also the place of atonement. On the day of atonement, blood from the sacrifice would be sprinkled over that lid to atone for the sins of God's people. This was very important. Why associate that with the altar of burnt incense? I wonder. You know, it was common practice. If you were a king during this time, in the king's court, do you know what was constantly burning? Can you guess? Incense. They, they wanted to make an association that there is no sweeter place than the presence of the king. Huh. The most holy place, the place of atonement, would be pervaded with this sweet-smelling aroma regularly, this burning incense. This association, the burning of the incense and the offering of sacrifices would declare, here's the point, it would declare the sacrifice to be pleasing and acceptable before the Lord. Here's the, here's the big idea. Through sacrifice, the Lord is pleased to dwell among his people. Why do we burn candles and use Glade plug-ins when guests are coming over? Maybe your house stinks. I'm sorry. <clears throat> There was a house, and this is, I wasn't planning on sharing this. When we came here in view of a call, and the church graciously said, yes, we want you to be our lead teaching pastor, we got to start looking for a home, right? And there was a home out in Hudson that we really liked. I'm not going to tell you where it was, because that's rude. <clears throat> Had a big yard, I think it was like two and a half acres, good size, appropriate fit for our family. As soon as I walked in that house, it's empty. There's nothing in the house but this deathly smell. A smell that I'll never forget. A smell that wakes me up at night. Why do I say that? Well, my association with that house was not good. It was that horrible smell. Imagine the worst smell you've ever smelled in times 2,000. That's not even close. It was bad. Haley said, I like the house. She wasn't with me. Oh, babe. It's a no-go. It's a no-go. So again, why, a more serious note, why do we light candles and use Glade plug-ins when we entertain guests when they come over? Because we want to honor them, I think, with a pleasing aroma, right? That's true. We want to honor them with a pleasing aroma. We want them to make that association with their time in our home. 
Their time in our presence, their time fellowshipping with us is sweet. It's sweet. And that same association is being made with the house of the Lord. Time in the Lord's presence is most sweet. It is most sweet. It is most pleasant. And it should be sought after. Amen? I I love this. One writer, Tim Chester, he describes the altar of incense, and this is going to sound silly, as a cloud-making machine. What? A cloud-making machine? He writes, think about what an altar of incense does. It creates a cloud of what? A a cloud of smoke. Now, why is that significant? That regularly, when you walk into the most holy place, there's this cloud of smoke. smells good. What could that mean? What could this signify? If you recall what I said a few weeks ago, the tabernacle was intentionally designed to look back to Exodus 19, 16-20, where God met with Moses on top of Mount Sinai. Do you remember that? Let me read that for you. This is Exodus 19, 16-20. On the, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud. A thick what? A thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, again, listen, verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The cloud, here's the point, the cloud of incense enveloped the place where God met with man, replicating the experience of Mount Sinai. It represented, right, so this altar of incense with this ongoing cloud of smoke It represented God's presence with his people. As Chester notes, what happened on Mount Sinai is going to happen routinely in the tabernacle, albeit in symbolic form. The altar of incense and the perpetual smoke from the burning incense declared the tabernacle to be the place where God would meet with, reveal himself to, and speak to mankind the place where God would reveal himself and speak to mankind. The cloud of smoke from the altar of incense was a visible and perpetual reminder of the exodus. It was a reminder of the exodus. Why is that important? Man, if you you know the Bible, if you've read the Old Testament, what does God not want his people to forget? What event? Everything they do points back to it. The Exodus. It makes sense that God would set up these perpetual reminders in this place, pointing them back to who he was and what he'd done. And of course, if you know Exodus, the end of our story ends with what? Exodus 40. The glory cloud fills the temple. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Finally, and maybe you're familiar with this idea, finally, 
the incense from the altar symbolized the prayers of the saints and communion with God. Not strange. I mean, who associates incense, burning incense, with prayer? Well, the Bible does. And not just once, but multiple times, right? This is a common theme throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New. This common theme is depicted by the burning of incense in the context of worship. Burning incense symbolized the prayers of God's people in the context of worship. I'll give you a few places where we see this. Psalm 141, if you want to write this down, you can. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Luke 1.10. Luke 1.10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Again, the association between prayer and the burning of incense. And then Revelation, let's go to the end, Revelation 5.8. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We could argue, we could argue that the perpetual smoke, this ongoing smoke from the altar of incense was an invitation to do what? To pray. To commune with the Lord. And thus a reminder that through sacrifice, God's people could commune with the Lord. And not only that, and this is so good, but the altar of incense reveals the immense value that the Lord places on prayer. And if the Lord values it, His people should? If the Lord values prayer, what should His people do? We should pray. As one brother has written, unlike the altar of sacrifice, and this is outside of the tabernacle, the bronze altar was composed of what? I just gave you the answer. Bronze, right? It was bronze. It was bronze. But not so the altar of incense. The altar of incense, as we've read, was composed of what? It was covered with what? It was overlaid with gold. And then you have the incense itself. What about the incense? It was made up of rare and precious materials. God was saying through the precious metal and the precious materials, prayer is precious to me. I highly value it. Which begs the question. This begs the question. Does, and I hope this convicts all of us, does the amount of time that we spend in prayer indicate the fact that we value it, right? I mean, what you value, you invest in. What you value, you do, amen? If God values prayer, communion with him, what should his people value? Prayer. Therefore, we should do what? We should regularly pray. Again, the altar of incense revealed God's desire to commune with his people through prayer. A sweet time indeed. Oh, who enjoys praying to the Lord? And if you have the Son, you have the Father's ear. Amen? I mean, if, if, you, if you belong to the Son, if you can say, yes, I know the Son. I know Jesus. He's my King. He's my Savior. If that's true, then you have the Father's what? You have His ear. So take advantage of that and do what? Pray. Listen, man, I'm really excited about this part. I want to talk about the senses. What are the senses, friends? What are the senses that God has given us? What do you think my favorite sense is? 
Probably taste. Why does God appeal to the senses? Have you noticed that? I mean, if you've been listening carefully, especially once we've come to the tabernacle, I mean, this is incredible. First of all, what grace? That God would appeal to all of our senses. The Lord condescends. Amen? He condescends. He comes to us. He takes the initiative. He shows himself in a myriad of ways. He appeals to the senses. There's the sense of sight, sound, touch, taste, and now smell. And I'm glad on on that day when I was looking at that home that that sense was working well. Because my wife, maybe, I don't know, Haley, you might not have forgiven me. No, she would have. The point is this, God reveals himself to all of mankind, amen? To all of mankind. For example, let me just take you through this little survey, if you will, the senses in Exodus. For example, we've seen the utter beauty of the tabernacle, and this has to do with what? Sight. Woven into the veil were these beautiful images of cherubim, these angelic creatures that recognized God's holiness and were created to protect his holy sacred space. Two weeks ago, we examined the high priest's clothing. And remember, at the hem of the priestly robe were bells. These were auditory indicators. One, that the priest was still alive. Two, that the sacrifice had been well received. If you didn't hear the bells, (laughs) brother's dead. Something, Something... Happened that shouldn't have happened, right? They didn't operate according to God's prescribed means, and God meted out punishment. But if you heard the bells, it was this audible, auditory indicator that he's safe, and God has received the sacrifice. Of course, you have the bread. The bread of presence would have addressed the sense of what? You know, I love bread. The sense of taste. And of course, the handling of the different pieces of furniture and The sacrificial system itself were all related to the sense of touch. And finally, as we've seen today, the altar of incense appealed to the sense of smell. The Lord appeals to the senses that he's made. All of these things, this is beautiful, all of these things serve as tangible reminders of God's very real presence among his people. Aren't you thankful? You know, this is similar. As I studied this and thought about this, my mind immediately went to 1 John 1, 1 to 3. Can I read that for you? 1 John 1, 1 to 3. This is John writing, the beloved disciple, right? He's part of that inner three, Peter, James, and John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we've seen it. We've seen it. We've touched it. We've heard him. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has made himself manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Dude, first John, oh, the Lord makes himself visibly known. He appeals to our senses. What grace. And as we're going to see later on in our time together, 
The climax of this is found in the incarnation where God the Son became man. The Word became flesh and was seen and heard and touched so that we could have fellowship with Him. That's a lot. Let me summarize that quickly. Question two is the biggest one, by the way. What is the purpose of the altar of incense? Number one, the altar of incense declared the presence of the Lord as most what? Most sweet. Most, there's nothing sweeter than the Lord's presence. That is the idea here. I hope you have that association. I, I hope you long to gather with God's people to hear the word, to sing the word, to pray the word in the presence of our Lord and King. I hope you long for that. If not, it's, a, it's an indicator of your heart. Beware. Number two, again, the question is, what is the purpose of the altar of incense? It was a visible reminder, right? I mean, that, that smoke is constantly there. It was a visible reminder that God was pleased by the sacrifices of his people and that the way to fellowship made open. Number three, it was a perpetual reminder of both God's glorious presence and his past rescue of his people. It was a reenactment of God's glorious revelation of himself atop of Mount Sinai. And number four, as we just finished, it represented the prayers of the saints and their communion with God and further served as an invitation to pray and commune with God. That was the purpose. All right, number three, and I'm going to move through these last two pretty quickly. Number three, what does the altar of incense teach us about God? Three things here. Number one, the Lord's presence is sweet. It is sweet. Amen? I love Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Oh, do you long for God? Do you long for the Lord? Do you long to spend time with the Lord, to hear from the Lord in his word and to speak back in prayer? The Lord's presence is sweet. Amen? It is most sweet. Number two, the Lord is gracious. Do you see it? The Lord is gracious. The Lord has graciously made a way into His presence. Through sacrifice, we can enjoy the sweet presence of the Lord. I mean, how mean would it be if, if God just held it out there and we could see it but never enter in? You'd be like, oh, come on, Lord, I can see it, but that's not the God we know. That's not the God we serve. He held it out, but He made a way through His Son. Amen? We can enjoy that presence. What grace! Do we deserve it? Do we deserve to be in the presence of a holy God? No! We deserve hell. But God is good and gracious, and He's made a way through sacrifice, namely the sacrifice of His Son, so that we can enjoy the sweet presence of the Lord. And number three, the Lord is hospitable. We've, we've seen this again and again in the tabernacle. The Lord is hospitable. Why do you think pastors should be hospitable? Why do you think God's people should be hospitable? Because the Lord is. He's hospitable. The Lord invites us to commune with Him. We've seen this already with the bread and the lamp. He leaves the light on for His people, right? And He's got a meal prepared on a table. How inviting. How inviting. And once in the presence of the Lord, there is no sweeter place to be. Delight in it. 
And number four, the last question where we always end our time. How does the altar of incense point to Christ in the gospel? Let's talk about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. We're taking the Lord's Supper this Friday, Good Friday, as a church body. I can't wait. We'll be celebrating the death of Jesus. Amen? And we'll take the Lord's Supper as part of that. What is the Lord's Supper? It is a tangible and visible reminder of the gospel. And it appeals to the senses, doesn't it? We handle and touch and taste the elements, the bread and the juice. What grace! The meal itself is a retelling of the cross. The bread that is broken is the body of Christ that was broken for sinners like us. And the juice that we take in is symbolic of His blood that was shed in our place. The meal itself is a retelling of the cross. The meal represents the saving work of Christ that brings us into his sweet, sweet presence. Next, number two, again the question, how does the altar of incense point to Jesus in the gospel? If you trust in the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, then you have the Father's ear. Now, an easy way to remember this is, if you know the Son, if you belong to the Son, then you have the Father's what? You have His ear. If you're a child of God, you have God's ear. <laughs> Your prayers will be heard. Oh, what a privilege. I don't think we appreciate that. And if we did, it would be seen more in the amount of time we spend praying. Amen? Can we admit that? The point is this, through Christ we can commune with God. Number three, the Lord is pleased. He is pleased by the sacrifice of his son. Again, what we're seeing in our passage is that the Lord is pleased to dwell with his people through sacrifice. We need the sacrifice of Jesus in our place in order to be in the presence of the Lord. God's wrath will only be satisfied through the death of his son in our place. And then lastly here, the incarnation. I said we'd come back to this. This represents the ultimate visible manifestation or revelation of God where the son of God left heaven and he came to earth, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and rose again. The Lord desires to make himself known for our good in his glory. Again, what we're seeing in the Exodus, right? Through all these different pieces of furniture through the tabernacle itself is that God desires to make himself known. He reveals himself. Amen? He speaks. He reveals his glory. But the apex of that, the culmination of that, the crescendo, if you will, is the incarnation when God himself left heaven and came to earth to live among us and die for us. Do you know him? Let me ask a few questions for reflection, and then we'll talk about the Pilgrim's Progress a little bit. Have you, number one, have you entered into a relationship with God by trusting in Jesus? Have you? Have you entered into a relationship with God by trusting in Jesus? If so, do you keep going back to his presence? Do you long for the sweet presence of the Lord? We do this by reading God's word, praying to God, and gathering with his church. Again, do you long to spend time with the Lord? 
And do you long to gather with his church for gospel fellowship? Do you delight in the presence of the Lord? Number two, again, these are just questions for reflection based on what we've just talked about. Are you telling others about the sweet presence of the Lord? Man, when something's sweet, right? When you've experienced something sweet, what do you want to do? You want to share it, right? You want to share it with others. Recently, some people have told me about this steakhouse, Leona's. Just how sweet it is. It'll change your life, Chris. Well, I want to go. Y'all have shared that with me. I want to go. I mean, come on. That doesn't compare to the sweetness of knowing the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? And if you know that sweetness, what should you be doing? Sharing it. Are you inviting others to taste and see? Number three, and this is, we're going to come back to verse nine. Are you trying to get to God on your own, through your own works? Are you today banking on your own moral track record? Are you thinking, you know, all this Jesus talk, I'm a pretty swell person. No one says that word anymore, but I'm a good guy. I'm a good gal. You know, I I pay my taxes on time. I I obey the speed limit, you know, 90% of the time. I'm a good husband, a good wife, take care of my kids. If that's what you're banking on, oh, you're going to be sorely disappointed. What does the Bible tell us in Romans 3.23? Some? How does it start? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we all need the same solution, who is Jesus Christ. We need Jesus. What happens when we try to get to God by our own prescribed means? Exodus 30, verse 9. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. God's very clear here. But there were two knuckleheads that didn't get it. Who were they? Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They offered unauthorized fire. And what happened to them? They they tried to do it their own way, by their own prescribed means, and they were what? They were killed. They faced the wrath of God. They died. When we try to get to God our own way, the results are disastrous. It doesn't work. It ends in death. My boys and I right now, we're about two-thirds of the way through the Pilgrim's Progress. We've uh, recently been introduced to ignorance. So if you're not familiar, it is an allegorical telling of the Christian life. It follows, (laughs) you could say the adventure, but the life of Christian from the city of destruction to the celestial city. On his way, he meets some interesting characters, and thankfully he has Hopeful by his side, a fellow pilgrim brother in Christ. But on the way, they meet ignorance. And and listen to what Christian says to ignorance. The king's pilgrims must come in at the small gate and go to the cross. You came in through the crooked path over there. I'm afraid you will not get into the celestial city. Ignorance tried to do it his own way. He later says, you know what? All paths lead to heaven. We'll all get there in the end. Is that what the Bible says? No, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If we try to get to God by our own prescribed means, the results will be disastrous. Number four, have you entered into the sweet presence of God through trusting, listen, I wanted to expand on point one, through trusting God. And the sacrifice of Jesus. 
which serves as a sweet and pleasing aroma before the Father. Eternally, eternally, eternally satisfying His wrath against our sins. And if you've trusted in Jesus as the Lamb of God, as the perfect sacrifice, as fully God and fully man who lived, died, and rose again, if you've trusted in His work alone for right standing with God, guess what? You are eternally secure, eternally protected against the wrath of God because now you're in Christ. Amen? Oh. You know, in verse 10, we got to end here, and then I'll pray. In verse 10, what do we see? Atonement had to be made for the altar of incense. Isn't that strange? Why is that? Why is that? And in fact, if you, if you listen carefully, everything, everything in the tabernacle had to be atoned with blood, the blood of sacrifice. Why? Although all of these things represented, right, the tabernacle and the different pieces of furniture, all of it represented God's generous provision, all of it pointed to something greater, someone greater, Jesus Christ, the once and for all sacrifice, the fulfillment of promise, the one who makes an eternal way for sinners like us. Amen? No need for further sacrifices, no need for animals to be slain and their blood poured out on our behalf. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. And if you trust in him, if you believe in him, you're promised forgiveness and eternal life with God. Only through sacrifice is the Lord pleased to dwell with his people. And only through the sacrifice of Jesus can we enjoy the sweet, sweet presence of the Lord forever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe. We are in awe of your goodness, your generosity. We don't deserve it. We deserve hell. Father, I pray that you would break our hearts of entitlement, of pride, of arrogance. I pray that we would see our lowly state. I pray that we would see our need for Jesus. I pray that we would rest in his work and his work alone, that we would not foolishly try to make our own way. That we would see that, God, you made a way. Father, through the sending of your Son, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, taught with authority, did miracles, ultimately to lay his life down at the cross in our place, bearing, taking the wrath, the punishment of God that we deserve, and then three days later being raised, proving that all his claims are true, and that what he did on the cross worked, that a way has been provided for sinners like us to be eternally reconciled to God, forgiven and brought into your family. Oh God, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. May we never forget it. May we thank on it from the time we wake up until we go to bed. May we sing about it, give thanks for it, and boldly declare it to others. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.